This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. So, uh, welcome back to the podcast. This is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Fresca. And uh, what do we got? What do we got today, Tom? Today we are going to be looking at the first of many trials or crimes of the century, and that's going to be the kidnapping and murder of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., the, the Lindbergh baby. Well, I think you're kind of giving some stuff away by saying murder. I mean, we don't really know if he was murdered. I mean, do we? Do we? Well, that's what the trial was about. So we're talking about the trial, too. I know. Too. I know so the I trial, know. He, he was uh, it was a murder, according to the, the FBI. Yep. So uh, I think that, you know, obviously this is our first foray into true crime. Hopefully not our last one. But this did happen in our home state of New Jersey. Hopewell. And, Hopewell yeah. Right? Yep. So uh, I think it was kind of fitting that we uh, try to, you know, talk about this supposed trial of the century. So I think the way we're going to do this is we're going to kind of start off by giving some background as to who Charles Lindbergh Sr. really was and why he was so famous and popular and why anyone would want to kidnap his baby, which did happen during the Great Depression. What ensued was, I mean, international news. I mean, Charles Lindbergh was probably the most popular American at the time. You know, we're going to kind of run through Charles Lindbergh, the kidnapping itself. And then once we do the kidnapping, more or less what we know for a fact happened. Then we'll get into the intricacies and some of the things that don't quite add up and maybe touch upon some of these um, supposed conspiracies. Alternate with theories that are to, out there, yeah. Yeah, some of the theories with regards to this this kidnapping. So uh, just kind of a background on, on Charles Lindbergh. Uh, he was a 25-year-old male pilot. You know, he delivered mail and became essentially the most famous figure in the world overnight. Um, the reason for it is... He flew a single plane, which he called the Spirit of St. Louis, which was literally made out of wood, uh, from San Diego to St. Louis, New York. And then six days later, on May 20th, 1927, um, he decided to fly it solo across the Atlantic. Now, this may not seem like a big deal today, but at the time, nobody had done it. Actually, six pilots died trying to fly across the Atlantic Ocean at this time. Um, It wasn't done before. There was actually a prize that would be given $25,000, which was a lot at the time, if anyone was willing to risk the nonstop flight from America to Paris, which Charles Lindbergh did. So all he had in his plane to try to minimize the weight was a compass, five quarts of water, five sandwiches, and no radio because he thought that was a little too heavy. And he flew 3,600 miles in 33 and a half hours, Right. Uh, when he landed in Paris. So he stayed awake by himself, no radio, in this little tiny plane that literally had like a wicker chair he was sitting in for 33 and a half hours without falling asleep. This guy flew across. When he landed, he became uber famous. That jacket, that bomber jacket, that's become like the fashion sta- like the fashion staple of like the time. Yep. Those bomber jackets, the type of like the pants that he wore, like that whole outfit, that became like the in thing. Like anything, tra- yep. he was a celebrity beyond celebrities. At that time. And that's one reason why um, him and his wife, Anne, right? Her name was Anne. That's why they moved to New Jersey because they were so famous. They compared them to like the royals in England. They couldn't they mm-hmm. couldn't go anywhere without being noticed, without being identified because the people were always seeing, that's back when people used to read newspapers, they were used to seeing Charles Lindbergh. So when he, he comes to New Jersey and lives in the suburbs, it's kind of like their escape to get away from 
the craziness from living in the cities and everything like that. And it winds up, but he's still super famous. So here's this super famous guy living just in a suburb, trying to just relax, get away from all. And then unfortunately, like the worst thing that could happen to a parent takes place. Yep. And what also needs to kind of, we need to bring up here is that the house in which the crime um, took place, that particular, it was a new house that they were just building and it wasn't quite finished yet, which is why some people later claimed that the kidnapping of their child had to have been an inside job because they weren't really scheduled, nor did they really stay at that house that often. At the time, they still stayed at the wife's, you know, the wife was actually came from a very wealthy family and they mostly stayed at her house. So that's why they said, well, it was kind of on a whim that he decided to stay in that particular unfinished home on that night, you know, in Hopewell, which is why people are like, well, how would the kidnapper know they're going to be there that night? But let's, uh, sorry. So that's essentially the picture of who Charles Lindbergh is, right? This guy, oh, yeah. super famous. I mean, he met so many famous people because everyone wanted to shake his hand. I mean, there's a controversy with that as well, because uh, as you know, we, we both know he met Adolf Hitler. Um, yeah, there's a lot of other information about Lindbergh. I guess we could do a pod- like say this, right? We'll do a podcast. Definitely do a podcast about Lindbergh. <laughs> I was waiting to see how long it was going to take. Yeah, to of say course, that. Long we were, we we're going to do another podcast. But yeah, we can definitely do one on Lindbergh because there's a lot with him, especially in those like the pre World War II years after everything that happens here. And there was actually a, um, I don't know how familiar you are with alternate history books, Peter. I know I'm getting a little off yep. the tangent here. But no, that's all right. There's these alternate history books. And um, one of them is where Lindbergh actually becomes president of the United States. And he allies with Adolf Hitler in that, not because necessarily of his ideology, but because it's revealed later on in the story that the Nazis is, are the ones that kidnapped Charles Lindbergh Jr. And they're, they're saying, if you want to see your son again, you have to defeat Roosevelt in the election, have pro-Nazi you know, policies in America. Is this, a, is this a, like a, like a novel? Yeah, I forget exactly what yeah. it's called, but huh. I should look it up. Uh, Harry Turtledove is a guy. Oh, yeah, Turtledove. Yeah, he, he creates a lot so of many other crazy ones. The one like the, the AK-47. AK-47. Yeah, look at that. AK-47. Like, uh, aliens invade in World War II. Yeah. So he creates yeah. a lot of these like crazy ultimate history books. Yeah. But um, that, that's one of them. So the Harry Turtledove is the guy's name, right? We should do a podcast on him. <laughs> we should. I mean, it's a lot of cool alternate history. So, all right, let's anyway, kind of get back here again. Yeah. This is, like, again, like what happens in our classroom. <laughs> Just get off tangent. <laughs> Woo, oh, to the right. It's yeah. happening a lot um, lately. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So, um, all right, so here's Charles Lindbergh. Him and his wa- uh, wealthy wife, they're they're young. Um, they go home to their house in Hopewell. It's about 60 miles you know, away from New York. And that's when the tra- tragedy essentially strikes, right? Yeah. So, uh, Lindbergh boy, their son, um, has a slight cold. Lindy you know, boy, right? How they call them? Lindy boy? Lindy. Yep, Lindy boy. He's got a cold. It's kind of raw and windy outside. Um, it's 20 months old. 20 months old, right? It's March 1st. Uh, kind of still a little cold in the evening, Tuesday. Lindbergh's return from New York. They kind of decide, all right, well, they're going to put the baby down. Um, they didn't actually do that themselves because they they're wealthy so um they have a nurse who puts the baby to sleep and i think she's the last one to actually see betty the baby gow is her name betty gow yep betty gow um so she puts the baby to sleep in a second floor nursery and then you know Lindbergh kind of goes downstairs with his wife and they're hanging out in you know like the downstairs room and he later testifies that he heard like a weird cracking sound yeah cracking which, strange noise yep which later people um FBI attributed to actually a ladder that potentially cracked under the weight of the kidnapper and the baby when they were trying to leave 
when the kidnapper had kidnapped the baby through the second story window using a ladder that he set against the house. So at about 10 o'clock or so at night, Betty Gao, the nurse, uh, goes up to just kind of check up on a baby and she notices the baby's missing. So she promptly goes downstairs, asks the Lindberghs um, if they have the baby or if they took the baby. And, and you know, Charles Lindbergh says, absolutely not. So they all run upstairs. Yeah. And uh, Lindbergh's the first one in the room. He grabs his gun and starts chasing, starts running on the property, expecting to find the baby somewhere there. Yeah. Yep. And he's actually screaming, and they have stolen our baby. And he was rightful to think, you know, right to think so because there's actually a note, right? They do find a note. Yep. There's a note left on the windowsill. Um, Tom, do you want to talk a little bit about what? Well, it was a handwritten ransom note. And um, they actually have, you can find copies of it. It's, you know, part of the FBI investigation. And the ladder too, they get back to the ladder, someone will talk about later. The ladder they say was like, it was a handmade ladder. It wasn't one you go and buy in a store. Someone made this ladder just for this mm-hmm. purpose. So there's another reason why, how do you get a ladder perfect, the right size and stuff like that. So anyway, the hand note, this ransom note, um, the spelling and grammar was really bad. A lot of, uh, so that's why they believed and it's going to lead to the idea that how to be written by someone that English was not their first language. Yeah. Um, like it says, dear sir, have... $50,000, but the $50,000, like the dollar sign is at the end. Ready is yeah. spelt R-E-D-Y um, in $20 bills. Um, after two to four days, we will inform you to deliver the money. Money is spelt without the E. We warn you um, for making any anything public, anything is spelt wrong, or to notify the police the child, care, the child is in gut care, basically, and it has these other signatures on it. And at the yeah. bottom, there were two um, interconnected blue circles and a red circle with a hole punched through it. And no one really knew what that meant. It was like this weird symbol that was kind of put at the bottom. You know, if this meant some sort of group, some sort of symbol for the people that were involved. And um, Limber was very skeptical at first of getting other people involved, but he does contact all his contacts that he knows. This is Charles Limberg. He knows everybody. So in the police yeah. department, in the media, and news spreads very quickly. And hundreds start to come to the estate. You know, and that really probably hurt the investigation piece. It started to destroy, particularly the footprints. footprints. Yep. Because there were footprints. Like someone did come in the window and take this baby. That's not argued. Mm-hmm. It's not like, you know, this was put there after the fact. Someone took this baby, but they actually rule out what happened. And what's crazy about this is I was reading about a lot of this. That reminded me a lot of like what happens even in like the modern day crime scenes. Like I'm sure uh, you like the John Bonnet Ramsey case, which is still unsolved, right? Mm-hmm. So many people were coming in and out of this house. It just destroyed all the evidence. There was no way that they could. It, it destroyed the crime scene, and that's what happens here. Yeah, and you know, and you kind of mentioned this idea that he's trying to also get as many people as he can involved. And we should also mention at a time that at this particular time um, in 1930s kidnapping was a state crime um so therefore it fell under the jurisdiction of state police not um federal bureau of investigation not fbi it was not a federal crime it actually it became a federal crime because of this this case case. yeah Um, a lot of stuff becomes like in place because of this case like fingerprints and like they're using a lot more because of this case and also he called in all of these people and they all told him they're like his friends or world, well, a lot of them were military people that he knew from being a pilot. And they're all telling them, listen, this is a kidnapping. The only people that do kidnapping is organized crime. That's what they kept on telling him. It has to be organized crime. It has to be organized crime. So that was one thing. Like Lindbergh kind of takes control and uses influence. And then he kind of directs a, the uh, investigation towards what his friends are telling him. Even if some of the police officers and some of the um, detectives kind of have different ideas or want to pursue mm-hmm. different leads, Lindbergh isn't, isn't going for it. 
He's saying, no, it's got to be this because this is what my, you know, my friend said. And it does hurt the investigation, especially in the early, the early days of it. Yeah, he authorizes like mob figures. You know, these two mobsters, Salvatore uh, Spitel, I guess, and Airwing Bits. So he authorizes these two mob figures to act as go-betweens in dealing with the kidnappers. So he assumes, right, um, based on tip-offs that he's getting from his, his friends, that a mob has to be involved in this. So he basically authorizes these two mobsters to act as the go-betweens. And these mobsters supposedly are going to find who this kidnapper is. But Even Al Capone. That never, yeah, they never materialize. But then Al Capone, yeah, officially comes out. And says, uh, he's actually in jail. jail. He's in jail. Yeah, yeah, he's in jail all the time, right? <laughs> he's just doing it really to try to get out of jail. But he's like, of if course. you're in jail, I can get the baby back. And they're like, yep. no. Because they, don't, they know he doesn't really have any connection to this. But again, he, he it just shows how everyone is knowing about this. Yeah. And then, Al Capone even offered, like from jail, he offered $10,000 reward for the baby's return. Like he's like, I'm serious. I will help you get this baby. Just get me out of jail. Just get me out of jail. Yeah. Well, people yeah. look and they know how, how important this case is. And they're looking to get their 15 minutes of fame too. If they can yeah. somehow get their name attached. And we're going to talk about someone who definitely does that. That probably hurt the investigation. Yeah. Um, so this is where it kind of turns a little weird here for a second. Uh, obviously, it seems like the whole world is looking for this baby, right? Um, President Hoover um, is obviously notified of the crime, and him and Attorney General William Mitchell decide that, you know, we're going to do anything and everything in our power to get the Department of Justice to really cooperate with New Jersey authorities, right? We're going to throw in the FBI in there, uh, Coast Guard, U.S. Customs Service, U.S. Immigration Service. I mean, they literally gave all of these agencies to the disposal of New Jersey authorities and state police. Um, meanwhile, at the same time, here is Lindbergh trying to do like a side hustle on the side. Okay, let me try to figure this out if I could do it my way. We got to understand, too, he, wants, he wants his son back. Like, what would you yeah, do? Yeah, of course. You know, he, right? he's, I mean, he's, yeah, a, he's a millionaire but at that time. He's got these resources, has these connections. You're going to let you, they're going to do their things. Right? But he's going to, if someone tells him, listen, this is definitely the mob. We can... You know, if you talk to yeah. these guys, they can get you your kid back. He's you're, you're going to do it. You're going to do what you can do um, to get your to get your kid back. And the the reward total is, is over seventy five thousand dollars. Remember, this is a Great Depression. I right? saw so that's yeah. over one point four million dollars today. Yeah, it's over one million dollars, which is yeah. crazy amount of money in the Great Depression. So what's interesting too is that the police take a reward for any notification that will help them solve this crime, they say it was $25,000. And then Lindbergh's like, I'll give you an additional 50000 yeah. for anyone that could help me find my baby. And then, you know, this is odd. This old 72-year-old teacher from the Bronx <laughs> like shows up out of nowhere. And he's just like really upset that Lindbergh, the national hero, would try to use mobsters as go-betweens. So this guy's name is Dr. John F. Condon, Condon. right? Mm -hmm. Condon. So Condon um, lives in the Bronx. And he decides that he, he basically writes in the Bronx Home News, offers $1,000 in his own money, right? Um, and asks kidnappers to please get in touch with me. Um, I will never, ever reveal your names. I would like to act as the honest go-between. And he publishes this in a paper on March 8th. And John, Dr. John F. Condon has no connection whatsoever to Lindbergh. It's just some random dude that's like, I will be the go-between person. Um What's surprising is he actually receives a reply saying, again, with misspelled words, right? Um, and those same blue and red marks all over the paper. Blue and red marks, absolutely. And it said that, all right, you will receive a letter and um, for Charles Lindbergh, and you're going to do it. After so, the ransom was raised to 70000 Yes. 
right? So they're seeing um, the publicity. They know he has money. So, you know, if you're going along with this theory and they just want more now, they see their chance they can make even more money. Yep. And his signature was the same, as you said, they're interlocking symbols, right? Never printed in newspapers or in letter. Um, so Condon brings this letter, this next ransom note, because there's a bunch of ransom notes here. They were delivered by like random taxi drivers. Like it, it was, the whole thing was kind of odd. But here is um, Condon gets this letter um, delivered and then he brings it over to Lindbergh. They match their handwriting and they're like, this is the same guy that wrote the initial one that was left on the windowsill. So Condon gets to go ahead. He is going to be the go-between person. Again, someone that's completely random. So on March 11th, uh, he puts an advertisement in a New York American newspaper where he says, I accept, money is ready, and his, uh, I guess, code name is JFC, right? Mm-hmm. And he waits for... And that's yeah. Because that's his initial, JFC. And that way, that's how the kidnapper would know. And they're sort of communicating through newspapers. And then there were you know further exchanges between Condon and mail was left, essentially, in random spots. Do you want to get into that a little bit with the Condon and all that? Well, they eventually agreed that um, to meet. And they meet on an evening at the Woodland Cemetery in the Bronx. And then Condon, this is a lot of people... Even back then, we were kind of skeptical of this guy. But like, how is, well, how is it this guy and everything like that? Um, but he says that he never actually saw the person's face, that all of their conversations were in the shadows, but that he sounded foreign. And mm-hmm. um, the man said his name was John. And he mm-hmm. said that he was a Scandinavian sailor and that he had a, a bigger gang of two women and three other men. And that the baby was being um, held on a boat and that he was unharmed and would be returned once they got the ransom. And then Condon... Again, from what Lindbergh was telling him, um, doubted that John actually had the baby, but he wanted some sort of proof. So he mm-hmm. said, if you have the baby, you could bring us the baby's sleeping suit, like pajamas, basically. Yep. And he told Condon to do that. And then uh, supposedly the stranger asked Condon, um, would I burn if the package were dead? And that kind of like freaked him out a little bit, hearing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that happened when Condon started to question whether um, the baby was alive or not. So I, again... This is coming from Condon, so we don't know really yeah. what's true and what's not. But then later on um, in March, March 16th, actually, um, Condon did receive in the mail a seventh note and a toddler's sleeping suit. Yeah. So, and Lindbergh right now just thinks everything. He he just is totally dependent on Condon now. Lyndon, yeah. uh, Lindbergh totally. Lyndon, Lindbergh totally supports him, totally believes he has, you know, he's just there for the best interest of him and his child. Um, and then they place another note in the home news or magazine saying the money is ready. No cops, no secret service. I come alone like last time. And then on April 1st, he received a letter saying it was time for the ransom to be delivered. So all this time, they're still waiting. The Limburgs are still just waiting for their baby. Like, think about that. It was yeah. early Mar- March 6th when it happened, March 1st when it happened. Now it's April 1st. Their baby yeah. is still not there. They're still waiting for him. Also, you have Condon. At one point, he actually says that in the later meetings that he does get a little glimpse of this man. And he goes, I, I think I could recognize him. Yes. And also Lindbergh is in a nearby car. Um, and while Lindbergh never sees, uh, you know, this John person and Condon speaking to him, he says he does hear him. And it also, you know, is eventually revealed the person they do find and, and is trialed and killed for this kidnapping Lindbergh confirms that that is definitely the voice that he heard, that he heard in one of those particular meetings. So they gave him the $50,000, right? Yeah. And 
the they $50, need it for a box and everything like that. It's not just money. I mean, it's not just, it's also gold notes. Yep. So you want to kind of, you, you want me to kind of get into that a little bit? So yeah, gold notes uh, were used between, they were able to track them. yeah, so gold notes, um, gold certificates, they basically, they were paper money. They look like dollars, but they had like a gold sign on them. They were used from 1863 until 1933. The United States was a form of essentially paper currency. And what it did is it was like a certificate. So it looked like money, but it was in turn really a certificate that gave its holder a title to corresponding amount of gold coin, you know, to what the worth of that uh, paper currency was. And because we were getting off the gold standard, they had to be, um, you had to get rid of it. They had to be turned into the bank. Yeah. And substituted for silver notes. So this was actually very smart on the part of Lindbergh when they gave these, this $50,000 away, they did not track the money per se, but what they did do is they made sure they gave it in, in these, Gold, gold certificates. And they didn't market. They, they were very, like, not to market some way. Yep. What they did do is they wrote down each serial number. And, On every uh, gold certificate. Every, yeah. And so they knew if they, these were ever turned in, it had to be from the person who had this money. Yep. And it was also the tip of that they are going to have to be turned in because it's going to become law by 34 oh, to have it, all of them turned in. Or oh, they become useless? Like you have it and yep. it, it's, it's worthless if it's not turned in by that point. You lose the money. So that was kind of the fact of him knowing a little bit ahead of the game of what's going to happen. So they give this fifty thousand uh, dollars. I'm pretty sure it's handed in 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 like um, so, it's so like wood, a weird a, a wooden wood. box, right? Yeah. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol, about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week, wherever you get your podcasts. Right. So custom made right. the idea. So custom made they found it again, if they find this wood box, they know, all right, this was a box given to the kidnapper. There wasn't just yep. like a random bag or a box you could buy in a store. It was made just for this purpose. So they, they were doing things that, again, it's kind of like a more of a standard practice now that the FBI and investigators that do these sorts of things, that's what they're going to do. Ways to distinguish, ways to like narrow things down for, in the investigation later on. And they, yeah. they're doing it for the first time in this Lindbergh case. Yep. And it's, you know, it's 1932. So what happens at that point is supposedly after the money's given, information is passed on to Condon that the baby is actually in a boat, right on a boat um, mm-hmm. called Nelly, I think, or something like that. Yeah. In the and Caribbean. it is, yeah. yep. It will be found between Horseneck Bay and, and Gay Head near Elizabeth Island, in, you know, um, in Cape, off of Cape Cod, basically. That's where the baby supposedly is. It's on this boat, right? So Lindbergh goes along to look for this baby. You know, it's about, it's a May, you know, it's close to mid May. And he essentially never finds the baby. Yeah, they don't find him. Right. So then now we get to May 12th. Well, basically what's going on there is there's a delivery truck driver by the name of Orville Wilson and his assistant. They're riding on the road um, south of the Lindbergh home near um, Hopewell Township. Um, they see a grove of trees. They've dri- been driving for a while. They have to relieve themselves. So that he goes into the grove, and when he's there, 
Um, he looks down and he finds, discovers the body of a toddler. And um, the skull was badly fractured. It was decomposed because it's been out in the elements since March. This is now uh, May. Um, yeah, it said it was like it was chewed by animals. Chewed by animals. Kind of um, it also said it looks like the baby, it was probably hastily buried. Like someone mm-hmm. dug a little bit of a hole and put the ch- put the child's body and covered a little bit of dirt. So there was some attempt at a burial. Um, Gao, the, that nurse, um, actually before this, I saw that um, they did find like the baby's infant thumb guard. Yes, near near the property somewhere, right? I was kind of saying, well, like, why is that around here? Um, so that was kind of um, interesting note. And then she's the one that actually identified the body was the nanny. Based on the toes. Wasn't it something Based on the, the toes? toes. Yeah, the toes had, like, I guess you could call it a deformity. It was overlapping toes on the right foot. Yeah. And also yeah. the baby was wearing a shirt that she made for it. Yeah. Um, and what the investigators later come out with is that um, it appeared that the child had been killed by a blow to the head. That, yeah. that, that blow could have been, come from a fall. It could have come from being struck. They don't know, but it was definitely head trauma. That is what um, killed um, Charles Lindbergh Jr. Um, and we'll never know more about it because that was really all the autopsy. They didn't really do that much. Mm-hmm. And um, Lindbergh insisted on a cremation um, afterwards, and the ashes were spread across the Atlantic Ocean. But you want to get to Hauptman, I guess, right? Because it's kind of quiet for a little bit there. I mean, at first, uh, some of the investigation people, initially people is kind of yeah. yeah. People are yeah, like, well, I mean, now it changed. It it went from a recovery to a murder now. Murder. Yeah. yeah. And uh, one of the people that is suspected is Violet Sharp. Uh, she's a British household servant at the his in laws' house. You know, at the wife's parents' home. Well, this is because and like she, yeah, because the official but, like. It has to be an inside job. There's no, yeah. like you said before, this house was just built. How did they know they were going to be downstairs? It has to be an inside job. So a lot of the suspicion fell on this Violet, yeah, Violet Sharp. Whether or not she had anything to do with it is debated. I'm sure yeah, I'll let you get into that. Basically, she kept on changing her. She was, she appeared nervous. But yeah. why wouldn't you appear nervous? Nothing. <laughs> yeah. When these cops are basically screaming at you, asking if you killed this baby. Yeah, or had anything to do with it. I mean, because they were initially, um, the Lindberghs actually stayed at the Morrow home, you know, the the in-law's house for the most part. And, you know, that night they decided to go stay in their unfinished home where the actual kidnapping took place. So people thought that maybe Violet Sharp, who was a servant at the in-law's house, might have tipped someone off that they were going off. And they started questioning her like, hey, you know, just FYI, did you let anybody know? And then, like you said, she seemed kind of really freaked out. Um, And then... Shortly after being suspected and interviewed by the police, she commits suicide. You know, June tenth, nineteen thirty-two. She, I think, ingesting like silver polish or something. Yeah, right that had cyanide. Had cyanide in it. Yeah, and she died. Yeah. And, and it was. They think that she was probably innocent. She probably had nothing to do with it. Yep. Later on, they just think that you know her alibi. She had an alibi that she was somewhere else, and it was later confirmed. The cops didn't believe it at the time. They just kept on pressing her, and um, she just couldn't handle the pressure, basically, of being assumed to have been involved in this case and in this murder. So she just broke and uh, committed suicide. And then, and then police were criticized even in the thirties for being you know, heavy handed. And you think about that, that, you know, knowing history, what some of the police were like back then and for people to criticize yeah. them saying, listen, you pushed this woman too far. Yeah. That had to be some pretty cr- intense, you know, um, interrogations. Interrogation. Yeah. Uh, so, Another person that obviously felt kind of 
you know, under suspicion is Condon, right? Yeah. Like, dude, where did you come from, right? Like, because he literally just randomly, you know, put an ad in a paper, like, hey, I'll do this. He doesn't know it. He doesn't even know Lindbergh. So, again, police tried every which way to try to pin something on this guy, and they just couldn't. And, you know, it didn't help that even um, Lindbergh kind of stood by him. He was like, no, this guy's pretty legit. He was doing some weird stuff, like you were saying before. Like, there was one time when he was driving on a bus. And he yeah. started screaming at the bus driver to say, just stop, stop. Because he said he saw the guy just randomly walking down the street. Yeah. He wanted to stay in the public's eye. He also was in, was in a uh, play about the kidnapping. It was kind of like- Oh, a- he made a lot of money off of that. Yeah, he's he like- made money off of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. So- It's kind of like, uh, what's his name? Like OJ when he did the whole like, well, I didn't kill anybody, but if yeah. I did, this is how it would have yeah, he wrote a, he wrote a book called uh, uh, Jazz Feet Tells All, like stuff yeah. like that. Like he was definitely milking this for what, what it was worth. He was yeah. becoming famous off of it and made money. So this is becoming a cold case very quickly. You know, it's 1932 by 33. It's pretty much a cold case. Uh, and at that point, you know, things really change when the presidential order comes out in 1933, May 1st, that all gold certificates needed to be exchanged for other bills. Right. Mm-hmm. And a few days before the deadline, um, a man brings like $2,980 to a Manhattan bank for exchange. And that's when they realized that the numbers matched up and these were bills from this ransom, right? The guy gave his name as J.J. Faulkner of 537 West 149th Street, but no Faulkner lived at that address. This was all fake. So this really kind of prompts or restarts the investigation. It's been a year since the murder and the kidnapping. And now the money's starting to kind of show up. up. It's starting to pop up. And then, you know, this is kind of really where it brings us to the guy, you know, the main guy who gets arrested for it. So you want to kind of get into that a little bit? Over 30 months, right? And a lot of these, mm-hmm. they're trying to spread all around um, New York City, uh, particularly in a German-Austrian neighborhood known as Yorkville. Mm-hmm. That's when they're finding a lot of these. Yeah. And um, like you said, a bank teller noticed a gold certificate um, from the ransom because the, they were told to look out for gold certificates. If you see one, look for these, you know, numbers on it. And then they wrote down a um, license plate, and they were able to track this guy. And his name was Richard Hopman. Yep. And he was arrested. And when they arrested him, they found a $20 gold certificate in his pocket, which matched one of the ones from the kidnapping. They went to his house, and they found over $14,000 of ransom money in his garage, in that box, in the box. Yep. Um, yep. So he was... Uh, when I read it, he says he was arrested, interrogated, and beaten <laughs> throughout the day and night. <laughs> so once they got him, they just started beating him up, basically. Because the yeah. whole time he is saying, I didn't I didn't do it. I didn't do it. He was saying that his friend, Eisdor Fish, who um, was conveniently dead, he died in Germany in 1934, was the one that gave him the money. And mm-hmm. that he didn't even know that it was money in there. His friend just gave him this box. The box to hold on to. said, yeah. hold on to this. And he put it up in his closet and didn't even know about it for some time and then he found the money yeah so he was saying it was yeah, just and, yep and he but then people like that didn't really add up because the his friend that supposedly stole this money and gave it to him to hold on to first of all it was initially fifty thousand, and now there's like less than half of that left right or half of it but the guy winds up going back to germany his friend, and then dies from poverty, essentially. Yeah, you know, he goes Yeah, like a $3 uh, room he couldn't afford. So they, they, they say yeah. that money doesn't make a lot of sense. 
yeah, like why would he leave all his money behind and then go to Germany and die really poor? You know, this um, this friend named you know Fish, um, which kind of didn't really add up a little bit. You know, essentially, I think they they I think they recovered like nineteen thousand, right? So I mean, someone spent thirty thousand dollars of it. But then they really start looking into this, right? And um, they get experts to really look at Hauptmann's ransom notes and his handwriting. And and as they're kind of looking at that, they sort of realize that like the handwriting is almost identical. Like this this seems to be the guy. They bring a Condon in, and Condon's like, "Yeah, I think this guy looks like the guy." Then the ladder, right? What's what's going on with the ladder? Well, they knew it was it was a handmade ladder. This ladder was mm-hmm. built, and they. They're unable to get any sort of fingerprints. A lot of fingerprinting is still in the beginning. Plus, they could have wore gloves. The only fingerprints or the only prints they find a ladder is from Charles Lindbergh Jr. Yeah. Um, but what they find while searching Hopman's home is a couple of things. But one of the things they find is wood that matches exactly the wood used from the ladder. And actually, a piece is found in his attic that would fit perfectly on the ladder. Missing two, yeah, like what a nail holes, right? What a nail yeah. holes would be. So they're like, "Why is this there?" And he's like, "I can't explain that." And then, as they yeah. continue to search things, they actually find a um, Condon's telephone number written in pencil on a closet door in his home, in Hopman's home. Yeah. And Hopman says, "Oh, um, quote, I must have written the paper about the story. I was a little bit interested and kept a little bit of record of it. And maybe I was in the closet." So he says yeah. he was reading a newspaper in the closet. And put it down as the address. I can't give any explanation about the telephone number. And they actually yeah. find like blueprints of him drawing out the ladder. The ladder. And he says, no, that was drawn by a child. And he brings that up because, his, ironically, he's a carpenter. I mean, so yeah. he brings that up. He goes, I'm a carpenter. Do you think I would have made a ladder like this? You know, a ladder that would have uh, would have broke? It, you know, it looked like it was a childish. Yeah, it was not a good ladder. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually what eventually was determined is the fact that at least the belief for the FBI and the state police was what Lindbergh heard when he was sitting downstairs. That weird noise was actually a crack of the ladder. And Hauptman, as he took the baby out uh, through the window, as he was walking or walking, when he was climbing down the ladder, the ladder actually cracked under the weight. And the belief is that he dropped the kill. That baby died before right, they right, left that yeah. property. They, they, the yeah, baby if, was dead for over two months when they found him. So it, it, yep. it, 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 unfortunately, he was not alive very long after kidnapping, and that's one of the theories. Is that or he died the night? You know, he died with Hopman dropped him. He dropped him. He's like, oh, oh man, what did we do? Because whether or not you believe Hopman did it or not, he was, definitely didn't want the kid to be dead right away. Yeah. And if he was the one that was actually talking to Con, then he was like, what? Am I going to fry if this kid is dead? Yeah. So. You know what? Another thing that kind of gets to a lot of people is why didn't this baby cry? Mm-hmm. Right. If this guy came inside. Why didn't this baby cry? So that's why there's a belief, like, was this an inside job? Did someone actually hand him the baby from that window? I mean, that was one of the uh, the things that was eventually brought up. Yeah, that it was someone that, the, that they knew. And then we'll get to, I guess, with the alternate theories. Yeah. So Howman is identified essentially as the guy um, also by his voice um, recognition in the sense of that Lindbergh's like, hey, this is the guy I heard at the cemetery. And then it totally matches... Um, what you know condon said this john looked like it seems like between all this evidence it seems like this is our guy right yes another thing that kind of doesn't quite add up here which is interesting too because his wife actually at first like didn't really help him no she actually um, yeah yeah. Um, yeah 
except like later on in like the 80s and 90s when she was still alive she's like oh no my son you know my husband was innocent but what happened here the main thing what really hurt him is that he said that his friend that gave him this box to hold on to basically left it behind and happened one day kind of just had it stored on this top shelf of this kitchen you know in his broom closet yeah. and uh, one time he's like oh let me just see what i'm holding on to this friend he opened it and he sold this money and he's like wow you know like there's a lot of money here and he's he said that owe- it was about forty thousand or something yeah, right he did owe him money and he goes this guy owed me like seventy five hundred dollars so i'm just gonna you know i'm gonna start using it but there's a lot of other evidence that kind of comes up here is the fact that Houtman literally had a full-time job until the day before the kidnapping. And after that, he never worked. He again. officially never worked again. Yeah. And yet he lived like a very lavish lifestyle. He so bought like, a dude, $400 radio. He sent his yeah. wife trips to Germany. And they're like, people were actually testifying in the trial. How does this guy, have, we didn't know how he was getting all this money. And then yeah. when his wife actually testifies, like you were saying before, Pete, they said, um, cause she used to always put clothes, whatever in that closet. And she said mm-hmm. she never recalled seeing that box there. He said that box was there yeah. for ye- months. And she's like, I never recall seeing it there. So that really, I mean, the prosecution really jumped on that. Yeah. As much as they're trying to kind of, you know, there is some doubt, but at the end of the day, you know, he is ultimately found guilty, right? Um, and when he's found guilty, he is sentenced to death and he dies in an electric chair week of January 17th, 19. 19- 36. And it seems like this is where it should have ended. I mean, all the pieces kind of fit. And the defense said that it's all substantial evidence because they couldn't pinpoint him exactly on the scene at the scene of the crime. So it could have all been planted. It didn't necessarily have to be him, but it seems like this is the guy case closed. But if that was the case, we might not really be doing this podcast. Well, there was a lot of years later. He was offered a large, um, a lot of money for his family too, if from the Hearst newspaper for a confession. And he actually refused a deal. There was a last minute deal that the prosecutors yeah. actually offered him that, listen, we'll commune your sentence from the death penalty to life without parole if you just confess. Yeah. Or said, if you will give all this money to your wife, you know, to kind of live on. And they got, all you again. have to do is confess. And they said no. Then they, they electrocuted him. Yeah. Which makes you think, right? If this guy's going to die and they're, they're giving him another chance if he just confesses, I mean, it's odd that he says no. But also with all that circumstantial evidence, like there's a lot of books written about this and also a lot of conspiracies. And one of the most popular um, books actually about it, uh, which someone who is researching this um, a lot, it's called the, um, he's written several books about it, the Lindbergh case, the ghost of Hopewell. Um, and he says, basically he, it's, it's a revisionist movement regarding the case, right? That people are just mm-hmm. kind of looking into it and looking at it with, with the intention of looking for conspiracy theories. Um, and his name is uh, Lloyd Gardner. He, he's a fingerprint expert. He wrote a lot of these books. And he basically said, listen, um, not with sending all these books, TV prom, that, you know, TV things, illegal suits, Hotman's guilty. All right? He did it. Yeah. He was involved in the kidnapping. He might not be the only person involved in the kidnapping, but he definitely kidnapped and killed um, Charles Lindbergh Jr. That he was definitely involved in it in some way. And that's what most people really believe. He might have been involved in it in some way. He might have you know, been the patsy for the crime. That that could have happened. Yeah. But he was definitely there. He was definitely – he definitely had that. That's how that money got there. There's too many other coincidences just for all those yeah. things to line up the way they did. You know, and there's a lot of other kind of odd things that, that kind of come out of this. Um, one was the 
Evelyn um, Walsh McLean or McLean McLean, I think. Mm-hmm. Did you hear about that or read about that? I don't think. It was this like super wealthy woman, and she actually believed that, you know, that she she wanted to help. Again, this is like a really wealthy woman that just decided that she wanted to help, kind of crack the case, even though the baby was already found. And she asked a, a private investigator um, to find the child, and she actually gave this private investigator a hundred thousand wow. dollars, which again, the thirties. Uh, actually, it was hundred thousand dollars plus four, like hundred thousand plus four. Four was for the expenses. And the idea was that he was this this private investigator is supposed to go out and find, um, you know, this baby. And he ultimately, you know, obviously takes the take the woman money and all the claims he had that he knew the supposed kidnappers, the real kidnappers and murderers, not murderers, because the belief was that the baby was still safe. Uh, it didn't come of anything. The guy was actually uh, um, arrested, this private investigator, and convicted and sentenced to 15 years in prison. But it just shows that even after the death and it, it, this case is done, people were still like, yeah, but like, is this really, was this really the baby that was dead? Like, is this baby really somewhere? Right? I mean, that was. Yeah, well, know, there was no DNA, but it, it was, yeah. They, they weren't yeah. doing a DNA test like they would do today and things of that nature. Um, but again, they could tell very easily from the toes. They could tell what the child was wearing. And that's the thing, too. If the child was wearing the shirt that she made, it, it couldn't have been. Remember, he was he died months before he was found. Mm-hmm. Buried not that far from the actual house either. Yeah. So that's what like, all these other theories come. Like, I know we talked about one that um, they believe that Lindbergh was actually responsible for the kidnapping. I was going to get into that. Yeah, there was this there's this conspiracy that Lindbergh was the one that orchestrated this entire thing to kidnap his own son. Do you want to get into that? Yeah, well, the one kidnapping is several books written about it. Um, Beneath the Winter uh, Sizemores is one implied that because the baby was physically disabled. And again, we don't know how physically disabled it was. He's had some crooked toes um, that Lindbergh just arranged for didn't want that sort of like oh a i don't i'm not having a disabled son so he didn't kill the baby they're not they're arguing that the baby was actually um just the kidnapping was fake and it was a way of secretly moving the baby and they got some other fake baby to be that baby that died um yeah. and they moved the baby secretly to be raised in germany and that's yep. where the baby and the boy grew up in germany um there while everyone believed that the actual Lindbergh baby was was killed that's well, more. because because he was supposedly very like much into this whole Aryan race thing, you know, like yeah, well, well like eugenics. Podcast, he was very much into that Aryan race, and he yes, he was anti-Semitic. I mean, you know yep. what it was. Lindbergh was anti-Semitic. I mean, there's no, yep. not to the extent necessarily of let's kill them all. All right, I don't want I don't want to throw that out there. But, but yeah, he, no, he he had he had those views, had some intense views. Yeah, and as I mentioned, the idea of eugenics, you know, this theory at the time that was kind of coming out that you could create a perfect human race through like selective breeding, you know, like that was kind of his thing. Oh, good genes, good genes. Yeah, and later on, historians have kind of looked at, or at least conspiracy theorists have looked at this and said, all right, you know what, like Lindbergh Jr. wasn't a perfect baby. So um, they said he had a large head, he had issues with his toes, um, and and the belief was that Lindbergh kind of felt very disappointed in his son's flaws. Yeah. Again, this might be a stretch, but I find it very interesting that this really shouldn't be a cold case. I don't think it is a cold case. It's just it's the FBI it considers it closed. Yeah, it's a closed case, but like the mystery continues, you know. Like, and I'm not sure why 
that is. But I think what really fuels that is over the years, you have an abundance of people that have come out and claimed that they are indeed the Limbrick baby. You've had that. You've had other, a lot of um, individuals saying the prosecutors tampered with witnesses. The fact that they found no fingerprints on the scene is saying, how can that happen? And other people just say, well, they did have gloves in the 1930s. So if someone wore gloves, you're not going to have fingerprints. So you have those sorts of things. A lot of them will say that um, Lindbergh um, killed his son accidentally in a prank, that he just climbed up the ladder and he was going to try to scare his wife and be like, oh, the baby's got kidnapped or something and dropped the baby, didn't do all this other stuff and found um, Hoffman to blame. I don't know really how much that could have worked. But yeah, the big thing yeah. is that people say, no, I am Charles Lindbergh's son. They, so people yeah, say, they, they actually believe that. Yeah. Which is, it, it comes out all the time. I mean, someone that just came out 2010, it was like 80-year-old dude. He's like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really Charles Lindbergh's If they really want to like do that, they can just test it. Yeah. That's, that's nothing. Go and look at, you know, just ancestry.com. Boom. Do that. See if you, if you're related to Charles Lindbergh, you know, or, you know, I'm not even talking about the DNA test that the cops can do. I mean, that's, that's simple stuff. You know, we'll get, uh, get Maury, get Maury to figure it out. Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah. A lot of the people that have claimed to be, you know, Lindbergh's babies, uh, baby, they've been, you know, kind of given, uh, they've been well, asked to, to do happen. DNA tests. And a lot of them just say, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but I really am Charles Lindbergh Jr. We had that too for years. Remember, like Anastasia? I'm the, yeah. People, they were Anastasia. We should do a podcast on that. On Anastasia? The last No, song. seriously, no. That could be kind of cool. We have, we have, we have right? plans coming in the future. Don't worry. All right. All right. We got some ideas there. Nowadays, really, Lindbergh would really, Lindbergh and his wife and the, all the people inside would really be looked at even more. Like he was never interviewed that much about it. I consider a suspect at the time. That that's come like after the fact. Yeah, uh, I actually watched something. Uh, I watched like a little video clip by uh, FBI agent today. They said that if this happened today, he would have been like the first person to be suspected. Oh yeah, that's what they, they always that's, suspect a family, rightfully or not. That's what that's what they do. They look at yeah. this, and there were ones that were suspected of inside job. But again, like we mentioned before, because Lindbergh's friends are saying, "No, this has to be a mob job." That's what they're looking in the first in the beginning of this investigation. You know, I don't think this was meant to be a you know fun story, but again, I think it's a something different. But the most important case, the most important story since the resurrection. That's what like the New York Times. That's what they called it. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah what they called it at the time. Things. I think. Uh, I, I mean, before we go, I, I just kind of want to uh, talk about a couple things real quick. Uh, for those of you guys that have not yet visited our website, we have a website. It's uh, History Teachers Talking Podcast dot com, and we are also now on Facebook. So if you want to reach out, we are there. I think that kind of concludes our podcast today. What do you think, Tom? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah that's it. That's all we have to go. All right. Awesome. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our podcast again. And, uh, you know, till next week, Peter signing off. This is Tom signing off. Take it easy, guys. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. 
Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.